I'm stoked because this week I got to talk to my friend Tommy Williams about his life in music. Tommy is the closest I will get in my life to hanging out with a rock star. See? Artists need to make art like a shark needs to swim in order to stay alive, right? I started Relief Valve because I needed the creative outlet to keep me going through hard times. And Tommy talks about his art and how he is using technology to continue to get his art out into the world at a time when we're all being kept away from venue performances. And maybe even makes a few bucks along the way to keep the family fed. So be sure to check out the links in the show notes after you've listened to the episode so you can share in his music as well. Welcome back to the second season of The Relief Valve. I hope you all stayed safe. I hope you all had a great break. Please invite your friends to listen and send me feedback on what you like, what you hate, uh, maybe even things you want to hear more about as we keep on keeping on in 21. Tommy Williams is a professional musician from Long Island, New York. After honing his skills on guitar, bass, keyboards, songwriting, and arranging, he began his professional career at 17 on the New York club circuit. He soon landed the position of guitarist, keyboardist, and musical director for the 80s teen pop star Debbie Gibson, touring the world and appearing on her first three albums, including lead guitar on the number one hit, Lost in Your Eyes. Tommy is a member of the band The Hooters, where he provides vocals, guitar, mandolin, mandola, and keyboards, playing to sold-out concert and festival crowds around the world. When he's not on tour, he teaches and performs weekly live webcasts on Facebook Live. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself uh, and uh, how you got started being a professional musician, what you do. Oh, God. Well, <clears throat> this is going back quite a few years. Uh, I work... Um, in uh, uh, rock band situations, I work as a musical director for um, uh, theatrical productions on occasion. I uh, teach privately, and I do a lot of, uh, in addition to being a performer of my own material, I also work with other artists in a, either a uh, sideman or producer capacity or musical director capacity. And um, pretty much in any uh, in any uh, situation that comes along, I also uh, do a lot of um, scoring and arranging for uh, other instruments in various projects. But um, if you're choosing to do music, you know, as as your profession, you can't really just do one thing. You can't be like in a band and have that have that be it. You know, you have to be able to uh, uh, diversify and you have to keep as open a mind as possible for uh, opportunities, not just because of the monetary aspect, but because of the broadening of your palette of abilities uh, by, you know, touching on things that you haven't done before. I'm very lucky that when I was young, I was exposed to a lot of different music very, very early on. <clears throat> My mother uh, played a little guitar. Uh, she didn't consider herself, you know, a, a musician really. But she, in the '60s, um, a lot of people played what was then referred to as folk guitar, which was just very simple chords and uh, singing, you know, the folk songs of the '50s like Tom Dooley and things like that. 
and uh, and she had a couple of uh, of, of uh, instruction books that she had used uh, to teach herself. And later on, when I was a teenager, she gave um, again folk guitar, quote unquote, lessons to uh, some uh, local kids. Uh, but but also all the while, she never really considered herself, uh, you know, a real a musician. She was always very self-effacing about it. Uh, there wasn't anybody in my immediate family that did uh, music to any degree. The farthest back we can determine was that uh, my great great uncle, I believe it was, uh, was uh, a conductor of uh, the U.S. Navy band at one time, way back in the tens or twenties uh, of the twentieth wow. century. But that's about that's about the only thing we can figure of any kind of uh, of uh, you know having it be in the genes uh, to any degree, any kind of ancestral. Uh, relationship uh, to music. And uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was born uh, at a time when the music explosion of the late 60s, I was born in 1964. When I was about four or five years old, I had um, one of those little record players that was like a box with a lid on it. And um, my parents were both very, very young as parents, I think, you know, married literally fresh out of high school, as many couples did at that time. So I had young parents, I was the first child. And all of my parents, younger siblings were teenagers at the height of the 60s. And whenever they would scratch one of their albums that they were buying that was current stuff, and buy a new copy, I would get their old ones. And I would I played records all the time, and I was uh, I was exposed to you know, when I was five years old. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix and the Cream, and uh, and of course the Beatles was 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 around uh, in the air ever since I could comprehend sound. So that was that was there all the time. Yeah. So music was a big thing in your house growing up. Yeah, it was, uh, and um, uh, my parents had a fairly wide ranging record collection. So. Um, I had, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, we would have uh, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, uh, of course, the Beatles and stuff. We'd have things like Johnny Mathis. We'd have things like uh, um, later on in 1971, remember, remember the we had uh, Carol King's Tapestry album yeah. and a lot of cast albums, too, that got me into uh, uh, Broadway shows. I, w- I had uh, Bye Bye Birdie and West Side Story yeah. and South Pacific and yeah. things like that. And, uh, and so I, 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 in both literally side by side, I was interested in, um, rock and roll and Broadway. And they also gave me uh, a couple of albums, uh, when I was a kid that made a huge, huge impression on me, uh, uh, different versions of, uh, Leonard Bernstein conducts for young people. Yeah. So we had uh, all those pieces of program music that kids are exposed to, like in Fantasia, like right. the Sorcerer's Apprentice and Peter and the Wolf and Night on Bald Mountain, things like that. So uh, I, I really didn't have too many uh, boundaries in, in, in what I was interested in. And I think that really was a huge uh, assist for me in, in not having too many blinders uh, as, as I got more and more advanced and more interested in music. Because as I said, you have to be diverse right. and, and, and uh, take opportunities in, in all these different areas. Right. So I think that's what I would recommend to anybody who, who has, you know, that sort of like insane bone in their head that I have that made you want to go into music as a profession. <laughs> I have a 19-year-old version of that in my house. My daughter is in her freshman year studying music and music education at Cal State Long Beach. 
So mm-hmm. um, this semester, in addition to already playing flute, clarinet, uh, alto flute, piccolo, alto saxophone, she's picking up uh, keyboard, guitar, bassoon, and oboe. <laughs> So um, she's very busy at this and she just soaks in it all day. The education part, learning how to teach um, was something that we stressed really heavily to her as well, because me having come from a theater background, I understand that if you want to pursue a life in the arts, you need to have another way to pay your bills at least. Oh, yes. And so uh, it's been wonderful to watch her go through her discovering music and her developing and her tastes changing and just being able to have conversations with her about it. You're talking about your parents and all the music they had in their house and the record collection and everything is really interesting to me because my upbringing and you and I come, I mean, we're, we're the same age. So we come from the same era was completely different. When, when I think back on it, my parents didn't own a single record that I can remember I'm not even sure we owned a, a turntable in the house mm-hmm. until my sister and I were older and bought them for ourselves. And we had record collections and I guess they had a few, but they had things like comedy albums and stuff like that. But my dad was into movies. And so we spent a lot of time watching movies and going to see movies and things like that. And of course it shaped my direction because when I went out into the world, I went out wanting to be in the movies. And um, mm-hmm. I just found that you're, you're talking about how important music was to your, your parents made that. Oh, yeah. We're all, we're all a product to, to one extent or another of, 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 you know, what we were surrounded by as, yeah. as, we, uh, as we grew up. And, and uh, it's interesting, uh, parenthetically, you mentioned um, uh, about uh, your daughters branching out. And uh, and I and I couldn't help thinking. Well, until she got into the keyboard and the guitar, she was pretty well set in terms of being able to carry all the instruments around in one shot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, because yeah. with the flute and the piccolo and so on, you know, basically, you know, a big trench coat would handle everything. Yeah, right. It's true. But uh, once you get into the other stuff, then it's like, you know, okay, what can you drive me with all yeah. my stuff? Yep. And, it's uh, <laughs> it, it's funny. She she so she started out with flute. And then she wanted to play jazz in high school. So she got a saxophone and, and learned how to play sax. Um, and then eventually the, the teacher in the high school allowed the flute into the jazz band because he heard how good she was with it because uh, she was the first flute to hit the high school jazz band. And then she did, uh, I guess, an internship with the L.A. Jazz Society a couple of years back, which was very cool because not only did she get the mentoring of the professional musicians, but they did a professional recording session in a studio and she got to perform at the Catalina club in Hollywood. So it was a really great experience for a high school kid to have. And, and then um, she discovered theater. She discovered uh, musical theater, right. Um, And started playing in pit orchestra at school when they started a live band with the annual theater production that the high school Mm -hmm. kids would do. And that in turn led to community theater. So she's done like two or three pit orchestras that she's, she's actually been paid for and, and her instrument selection, like clarinet, she didn't play clarinet prior to going into uh, musical theater and then found that, what is it called? It's called wind one or whatever the position in the pit orchestra yeah, read one. Read one. Thank you. Was saxophone, flute, and clarinet, and so she had all of them, and she could travel around with it. 
And then um, two uh, two years ago during the summer, she did a music program in New York at the Manhattan School of Music. And while she was there, I connected her up with some friends who uh, had her. She had the opportunity to sit in on the pit for Beetlejuice and for Mean Girls on Broadway. Uh-huh. And so, you know, she's hooked. She's like, at that point, it's like, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to work on Broadway and I'm going to do this. I'm going to be like, honey, I love you. Go for it. When you're, when you're ready, when you feel comfortable, you're, you're more than welcome to do it. But I had to talk her down out of things like the Manhattan School of Music because it's the best music education you'll get anywhere in the world for $200,000. And then you'll be an out-of-work musician with a $200,000 yep. debt. Absolutely, yes. And, <laughs> you know, and then I sat there with her and I ran the numbers. I said, okay, let's talk about uh, Broadway Pitt. Let's say you get yourself a job on a Broadway show. And let's say for the sake of argument, that show actually stays open for a year, you know, yeah. and, and which is a long shot. Um, and you're lucky you'll make as a beginner at it, probably $40,000, you know, for your year. And if you mm-hmm. in it for 15 or 20 years and you're really good and you're really successful and everybody loves you and they want you, maybe you'll make $100,000 a year someday doing it, right? But you live in New York. I was explaining uh, to my son, who's 15 years old, and he is, um, he's been uh, studying uh, uh, classical voice for the past uh, uh, four years uh, with a good friend of ours who's an operatic coloratura okay. soprano. And uh, he's also been uh, in uh, school theatrical productions uh, as, as soon as he was old enough. And uh, he went for um, uh, eight years to uh, the Youth Dance Center where yep. you and I met. Uh, uh, and he was uh, in the junior chorus productions and then later in the uh, theater arts department and uh, really doing some amazing work and, and just you know, astounding the hell out of all of us. And, and, and it, it was strange. My, my wife is a, uh, is also a musician and a preschool music okay. educator. And, um, you were talking about, uh, um, your daughter getting into yeah. music education. And so we figured, and, and my wife and I both, uh, we both started reading at age two. Uh, we're, we're all word nerds rather than uh, okay. math nerds. And, um, we thought, you know, the, the odds were, were that he would probably be interested in reading and interested in music, yeah. you know, just by the, by the, the law yeah. of averages. Uh, so that was fine. But we didn't know that he would scare the hell out of us with, with what he's able to do. Uh, and I think one of the advantages he has that we did not as kids were that we, both my wife and I, even though we didn't know each other as kids, we were both very shy uh, growing up, and it was only in the mid to late teens for me and the college uh, years for my wife that the uh, stage fright thing yeah. went away. Whereas my son, uh, my wife and I would do a lot of uh, children's duo concerts uh, for uh, uh, for preschoolers all over the place. And uh, when my son was three months old, my wife was wearing him in the baby Bjorn huh. facing outward uh, when we would do these concerts. Uh, so basically being in front of an audience is all that he's okay. ever known. So, so he, he had a huge head start in terms of being comfortable as a performer and being in a family of performers who were professionals. We, we, my wife and I didn't right. have that. We had basically 
non-musical right. families. So our, our development, you know, took a certain amount of time and he had a, a, a quantum leap ahead uh, with, with that, his influence. I, remember, I still remember the funny thing was our house was constantly, uh, we had visitors over all the time and 95% of them were musicians and we would, we would have parties and we would play from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And, and have all these wonderful uh, moments that would happen. And then once in a while, we'd go to someone else's house who was not a musician. And, uh, and uh, my son, after a while, my son would say to us, where are the instruments? <laughs> because, because he did, he didn't realize that everybody didn't do what we did. Right. You know, yeah. and it was, it was kind of, a, kind of a little bit of a culture that's, shock, I suppose. That's kind of cool. But, I guess it's well, you know, it, it is. Yeah. And it has its advantages and its disadvantages. Uh, but you know, you, 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 you take whatever ball you have and run with it. Yeah. As, as, and that's, you know, different for everyone, different for every family. And you, you don't worry about it. You don't apologize for it. Just keep your head down and keep going. Right. Don't, don't look back, you know? So let me, to, to shift a little bit, um, mm -hmm. let's talk about your, uh, professional experience. You've got some cool credits, uh, both current and in the past and, and in the process, uh, kind of explain to me what exactly the musical director does. Okay. Well, and, and it's interesting you ask that because uh, I, the, both, both of those answers sort of come together for me in the same question. Okay. Um, pretty much in anything that I've ever done, whether it's a, a, a band situation or working with a, a songwriter, you know, who, who, you know, just plays piano or guitar and needs some uh, direction and production. Yeah. Um, well, when I started off after, after playing in, in local, uh, bands and, uh, also I think I did a stint uh, when I did, I was in a folk group in church, which was a thing of the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, I don't think, I don't know of any churches that have them anymore. Yeah. It was a bunch of the sort of ex hippies that would, uh, play at the at the, the church services with acoustic guitars and we do sort of these folky versions of what you would hear in the the, the church proper with the organ and the choir you know okay. uh, we, you know we do um uh if you know as tears go by by the rolling stones yeah. it is the evening of the day yeah. we would do our father who art in heaven to that tune okay uh, <laughs> things like That's that interesting but okay. uh no that, that was a little sideline yeah. uh, as i was getting some facility on the guitar. I was sort of like the young, that's the other thing. Most, in most situations as I was growing up, I was always noticeably younger than everybody else I was working with. Yeah. And, it, and it's only partially because of whatever ability level I had at the time. It was more because of the frame of reference musically and culturally that I had. I was always into stuff that people my age were not into. I was into stuff that was like 10, 15 years older Right. Than, than, than I was. Right. Partially because of my parents' record collection. Right. And, but, uh, and, and just a natural maturity that comes from the way people treat you, right? I suppose, yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if, you, if you're lucky, and my son's been very lucky in this regard too, uh, if, you, if you're exposed to a certain uh, uh, level of, of professionalism, you come to, to accept that as, as the standard and you strive to sort of re to hit that bar. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yep. I mean, obviously, there's exceptions to that. When you're a kid, you know, they, they make allowances for you. Of course, at any level, you have to make mistakes 
so that you can learn the difference. Right. You have to do, I always, I tell my son and I tell my students, there is no better teacher for you. Uh, I mean, I can teach you till I'm blue in the face, but you, the, the biggest lessons you're going to learn are going to be from listening to a recording of yourself yeah. and being horrified <laughs> by what you've done. Because, yeah. because those, those lessons stay with you and you really never forget them and you really progress the most from having had those experiences. So I said to them, I wish I could skip you over the painful period, but whether it's your artistic development or whether it's your emotional development, you know, having your heart broken uh, by, by the first time, that's a step that you can't skip. Uh, You have to learn from the experience and it's just, you have to, you know, you have to have your heart broken before you you can fill it. And you have to, uh, you have to musically or artistically, you have to really suck before you yeah. can be really good. Yep. Because you'll never know the difference otherwise. Yep. You yeah. I, I I would add one thing to that if if I could. You have to be incredibly brave at the same time because oh, if yeah. you let the fear overcome you, you'll never do the things you need to do to get past. Absolutely. That's that's exactly one of the one of the things I took to heart. One of one of the biggest things I took to heart. I, I'm also, as you were talking about your dad, I've I'm I'm a huge uh, old movie fan yeah. and um and i have a huge archive of of not only movies but a lot of uh, uh tv interviews of of people uh, uh the you know, famous people writers directors actors etc yeah. and uh i'll never forget an interview i saw with jack lemon on on tv and he was talking about the things that he'd done and he said you have to remember this one thing failure will never hurt you but the fear of failure yeah. will kill you yep yep because you'll never try things yep and I and I tell you, I took that I took that to heart as much as possible. Uh, once or once or twice, I didn't live up to that, but I, I always try to keep it in mind. Yeah, and I think it's good for everybody, uh, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. To, uh, to have that in mind. Uh, anyway, as a to back to your question, um, besides doing uh, stuff with local rock and roll bands and being in local theatrical productions and so on and so on, and and I, I took piano lessons for a while. I didn't uh, progress by the book as much as I should have in that time because I had a teacher who was a good friend and was very lenient, probably too lenient with me. But um, uh, I did take a lot. I was very obsessed with um, the technical aspects of how to achieve something that I love the sound of because I'm very uh, macro about details. So even though I didn't um, progress as a piano student in the classical way as I would have liked to, because I was, spend, I was spending virtually all my time at the piano or with the guitar, but I was busy trying to figure out how to play Hey Jude uh, on the piano and or, or trying to do a certain Elton John thing and trying to figure out how to make it sound like it sounded on the record, okay. which usually involved my mother coming into the living room and saying, don't bang the piano so hard. Huh. Huh. And I say, but mom, it doesn't sound like the record unless I do that. So the, I, I eventually, uh, I, with with my own study uh, on on my own, I, I caught up technically with uh, with uh, how things worked, and I would take classical pieces I liked or Broadway scores that I liked if I could get access to the conductor scores of yeah. them, and I would and I would gradu- slowly but surely I married up my uh, my 
uh, obsessiveness with the objective I was after, I began to understand uh, orchestration and um, and just uh, how how a musical director functioned under the because I was very lucky I worked with some really wonderful and inspirational directors, okay. uh, both uh, in in choirs and in musical theater, okay. and uh, I've just always been of I've always been uh, really obsessed with the fine details. So it naturally progressed that whether I was in a rock band or in a theatrical production, I would really bear down on myself and on everybody else to really get a lot of this uh, fine detail the way it should be. And that, that evolved over a period of years to the extent where, and also because I was a multi-instrumentalist, I always, I always wanted to play what everybody else was playing. If I was playing guitar, I wanted to be the piano player and vice versa. Right. So, and, and, and I always say to people who are interested in music, even if you don't become the player of another instrument by trade, Mm -hmm. uh, the more you are familiar with other instruments in a hands-on capacity, the more, the more you can understand the role of that instrument in the ensemble. And therefore you can communicate to them better what you need them to do. And you can also have enough of an understanding of it to start being the, uh, the arranger, the musical director, the, Got it. you know how to you know how to combine instruments to get a particular sound, which is what orchestration is. You basically have a, it's a technique of blending instruments and deploying their strengths right. where you uh, need them in order to get what people think is just one note is actually a composite of several. Right. You know, and and that's and that's there's an art to that, but but it's something that it, there's there are some wonderful. Uh, uh, ways to be taught that if you go to a, a prestigious uh, music school or conservatory, yeah. I just happened to do it from the, the, the back, through the back door right. after the fact. Okay. You know? So again, with the, with the, um, with the bands I was in, I would in a crude way, start deploying that. And then when I was asked to provide piano accompaniment for a local production of something, whether it was a, a, a Godspell or, or the King and I or whatever, uh, a lot of productions would have uh, just piano because that's all they had the budget for. Right. Uh, but I, I would sometimes get them to bring in other instruments, and I would, you know, I would say, "Well, it, it, you can't just have like four instruments." Well, yeah, you can in a way. Uh, and I would learn how to uh, do. I still remember being asked to uh, provide accompaniment for "You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown," uh, the musical. Yeah. And, uh, and I had had the original cast album of that, which was a very skeletal, it was piano and percussion and one or two other instruments. It was very, very bare in its original production. So I was asked to do just piano and I brought in a drummer that I knew and I painstakingly wrote out drum arrangements for him. And I figured I'll just do a piano and drums and I'll get a sound sort of like that's on the original uh, album. And I learned a lot, made a few mistakes. He told me, no, well, the, to get the sound that you're talking about, this is how, this is what the drummer needs to see on the page. Yeah. So little, little things like that. And then by the time I, I was pretty well versed and, and working professionally like six nights a week on a local and regional level in a rock band, yeah. I was fine. I was asked, I, I, a few years before this, I was in a local production of The Sound of Music. And uh, a lot of it was being directed by some older friends of mine. As I said, I always worked and hung around with older people in myself. Uh, And some of these people who I'd been in my school class, but were now in college, they were directing it. They asked, we want you to be in in The Sound of Music. You could be one of the Von Trapp kids, but could you accompany some of the people who are auditioning? So I said, fine, uh, uh, I'll do that. And and that went on for a couple of days. And then these uh, four 
sisters came in, yeah. and uh, and one of them said, "Is it okay if I accompany my sisters in their audition?" I said, "Yeah, fine." And she played piano for her three sisters, and then she auditioned for herself. Yeah. And it was it was uh, uh, Debbie Gibson and her three sisters. There, huh. there, there are four of them. They're all they're all musical. Uh, but Debbie is the you know uh, you know a bravura. It, want, it needs to be a performer. One of them. Yeah. And um, so the, the the four Gibsons and myself and a couple of other kids were all the Von Trapp kids uh, in this show. So then jump ahead a few years later, uh, and Debbie's mom uh, called me because they lived locally. Yeah. And she said, uh, Debbie's writing uh, pop songs and um, she's we, we've set up like a little home studio for her, like to record uh, demo recordings. And um, I and and I know you, you're somebody that I know who's working professionally. Could you sort of help out and be kind of, uh, you know, a guidance and uh, play guitar and things like this? Yeah, so sure. So I, I worked with her and she was using drum machine and keyboards and she's classically trained uh, keyboard player and really brilliant uh, uh, musically yeah. so we, we made a couple of these uh, uh, demos and then eventually when she got a record deal uh, a provisional one to do like you know, like I think a single and if that works there'll be an album um, yeah. uh, her mom asked me could you put a band together because I don't know anybody in that end of the business you know I trust you so can you put a band together so we can do some live shows and I said, yeah. And I found uh, people, you know, who I thought were really good and, uh, uh, you know, started with the arrangements of stuff that was on the records. I played a few guitar things on, on the records myself. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I, I wrote arrangements out that basically took the, the album arrangements and then adapted them for live, like put endings on them. If the songs faded out on the record or whatever, and, or expanding them to give sort of like, um, uh, longer middle sections so she could play with the audience or putting putting an introduction onto something that could open the show, things like that. And just presented it to them in this one big move here, come to the studio. This is what we've come up with. And we, and we played that and uh, they really liked it. And from then on, I was the musical director and, and guitar player. And uh, before you knew it, we were um, touring the world and playing in, in places like uh, Radio City Music Hall and Madison Square Garden and stuff. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, again, from Jack Lemmon, uh, from that same interview I mentioned, yeah. um, there is always an element of luck involved. Yes, always. Uh, uh, somebody, somebody has to be there to open a door. Yep. But you'd better, you'd better deliver once yep. the door is closed. Yeah. But, but you do have to have that luck. And, and unfortunately... The, 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 the other side of that is that there's a lot of prodigiously gifted people who just can't get a break. Yeah. We, we become performers because we have to, yeah. because we would not be happy if we were not. Yeah. But you really have to have that mindset. And it's a little unrealistic to some people, but it is, you know, you just have to be true, honest with yourself. Is this what you want to do? And are you willing to really eat a lot of dirt if you yeah. have to? to get there. And, uh, and that's, that's the way it's always been. So as time went on, I, I did that. And then, uh, for a long time, I wasn't on the road after the couple of Debbie Gibson tours I did. I worked locally. I did a lot of wedding and corporate club date band jobs. I did more stuff in theater. I, I did an original CD of my own music. Um, 
uh, all kinds of things. And then eventually, uh, it was a long period while I was in the Debbie Gibson stage that I, I became aware of this, um, uh, band from Philadelphia called the Hooters. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, uh, to cut a long story really short, uh, I bought the first album by Cindy Lauper, which yeah. is time after time. Yeah. I love that. Album. And, and I always read, um, liner notes on records. I'm obsessive about details and I remember them. Yeah. And, um, uh, but not in areas of, of, uh, picking dirty clothes up off the floor, <laughs> unfortunately, but you know, it's a, it's a, that bone in your head. And, um, and I remembered, uh, the names of some of the people on the record. Then I read in a music magazine, uh, you should know about, uh, letters to the editor you should know that uh, a couple of these guys, uh, Rob Hyman and Eric Bazillion, who uh, play on the Sydney Lauper record, they play with this local Philadelphia band called the Hooters. Yep. And, uh, and they're really the biggest thing in Philadelphia. And I, and I, the name stuck in my head and, uh, and I did a little poking around and I, I would did, I did some part-time work at that time at a local record store yeah. and the Hooters had an independent album. They didn't have a major label deal yet. Um, but they had an independent album that was selling like, you know, 150,000 copies without a record label backing it They're just on in the vinyl pre CD days. Yeah. And um, so I had my boss at the record store order me a copy of this album and I really loved it. I thought it was, it had a lot of roots to it. It had, it was really classic in, 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 in the best of ways, but it was also quirky and different. Yeah. And, and I really uh, just loved it. And I, and I really respected what it was because in the, in the days of the, the new wave era, mm-hmm. this was something that, had some, I suppose, if you really stretched your mind, you could say it's got some elements of new wave and some elements of reggae in it, but it's kind of timeless in, yeah. it, in its way. You can, you can see where the influences come from, but you can tell this is not like a bunch of guys who only know three chords. Yeah. Uh, and and, and it's, it's really got some roots to it, but it also has a very, very strong individual identity. It doesn't sound like anything else. Loved it. And then eventually, very soon, they got a deal of their own uh, on a major label and they started having hits of their own. And they, and they were the first band on the American side of live aid in 1985. That's right. That's right. Um, Although they're not on the DVD, there was a bit of a, a, at the time that they were on stage, somebody was on stage at London who got precedence on the broadcast. Okay. But, uh, but, but regardless, but I became a big fan and I loved what they did. And uh, through a, mutual friend i um i hooked up with eric the lead guitarist on the phone and we got on like a house on fire talked for about three hours on the phone awesome the very the very first time and we didn't really uh, we we met each other when we were i was on the road with debbie he was on the road with the hooters we crossed paths in one city or two Mm -hmm. and uh and we had basically a, a a sort of like long distance occasional phone friendship i saw him once or twice but very rarely over the course of about 20 22 years yeah. and uh and he, he was he was a he was a buddy but also you know a, a real you know mentor i was really i really respected him very much and uh eventually um i was doing a i work with a local band in the new york area called wondrous stories and we do um uh, a lot of uh, classic rock and progressive rock a lot of technically demanding stuff and the gimmick of the band is that we would work, we would never, we would never rehearse stuff and we'd never have a set list, but we would, people would throw requests out from the 
the audience that we'd never done before. And we would just plow into them and do them, even though they were technically difficult. It was kind of a weird gimmick, but that was what we would do. And we did a lot of full album concerts, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Abbey Road, Sgt. Pepper, things like that. We became known for that. And one of our regular things that we would do once a year was uh, we would we would add a lot of players to be about 26 players on stage with horns and and multiple drummers and multiple guitar players and, and vocal choir and we would do the george harrison 1971 concert for bangladesh okay uh and and we'd, we'd try to recreate it as much as possible so we've done that for several years and for the first two years we did it i called eric and asked him would you play as a guest on this show uh and we'd have a little extra draw at the box office because of y- your name and he said, yeah, no problem, fine. And that was the first time we'd actually played together on stage, even though I'd known him for about 20 years. And it worked out very well. It was very nice of him. He did that. It was successful. And then uh, he called me about a year later to work a one-shot gig in North Carolina with uh, with Alan White, who's the drummer from Yes. And we did a lot of... Uh, we did some of Eric's material and some Yes material, and that was just uh, heaven for me because I was a it was a fanboy's dream. Um, and then about six months after that, Eric called me late at night as I was loading out of a gig, and um, and he said, "You know how I've been telling you for twenty years that if I ever break my arm and I can't play, you're the guy I'm going to call." And I said, "Yeah, where are you going with this?" And he said, well, I'm in Utah on a ski trip and I just broke my arm at the shoulder (laughs) and we have to go, the Hooters have to go to Europe in three weeks. Uh, And would you, would you be able to come with us and play all my guitar parts and I'll just be Mick Jagger with a hand mic and sing. And I said, absolutely. You got me. Uh, That won't even begin to repay you for the favors you've done for me. And and I and I adore the music and I know it all in my head except for the brand new stuff that I haven't heard yet, right. and um, so we got together. We rehearsed for three days. Uh, we we dotted the i's and crossed the t's, and went to Europe. Did the tour. It went really well. And uh, Eric said to me at the end of it, he said, "You know, it's weird. The the band's different now because it's a six piece instead of a five piece." And with the division of labor being different on stage, uh, a there's a lot of things musically that were able that were we were not able to do before with five guys that we can do live with six. You know things that you would do in the studio that weren't couldn't replicate with 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 five guys on stage, and also because we were juggling so many instruments. That's the thing about the Hooters. There's 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 no, there's no smoke machines or, or stage sets or any of that stuff. But it, but there's a voluminous number of different instruments, whether it's mandolins, mandola, accordion, steel guitar, uh, dobro guitar, all kinds of things. And people are juggling different instruments right and left. And um, with the six, six people in the band instead of five, uh, instead of being you know fixed at our mic position, grabbing different instruments, we can actually prowl around the stage and feed off the audience and do all this performance stuff. So like the, the Hooters has been the same way for 25 years and now it's a rock show. Let's keep it the way it is because it's really working well. So that was 10 years ago and, uh, and it's, uh, it's worked out great for me since. And, uh, and also it, it, very gratifying because there are a lot of gigs that you can do that are 
musically very sophisticated and you can learn them from the ground up and be challenged by it and be very happy with that you've done a good job with something. But there's another level to it when you've when you've really sincerely been in love with the music itself as a fan uh, from the past. And then all of a sudden being able to be in that position uh, yourself because the music gratifies you all over again on a deeper level. Yeah. No, absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so life is going along. You've got this gig going. You're teaching. You're doing local performances, I assume, in in clubs and all of that there in New York. So, you know, life is going on the way life goes on, and you're making a, a living as a as a musician, and then the pandemic hits. And yes. to add a layer to that, you're in New York, and New York was hit particularly hard at the beginning, um, while the rest of us didn't pay enough attention and are now suffering for it uh, more today. What was that like for you when things just kind of suddenly stopped? Well, it was it was a huge shock. Uh, I, I will say that when the first lockdown happened in New York, uh, when the governor uh, uh, issued that first uh, declaration, literally it was the day before we were due to do that concert for Bangladesh thing that I told you about. It was going to be the yeah. eighth or ninth time that we'd done it. And we were going to do it at the Tillis Center at CW Post College, which was a gigantic venue. Uh, it was a real step up for for that production. And that was the day before that, It was uh, New York was shut down. Uh, that was not only a huge financial loss, but it was a great disappointment uh, because it was something we were all looking forward to. We have a lot of guest performers that uh, that uh, that have different uh, that are that are renowned for different things, and they were all very disappointed by it as well. But uh, literally, as a performer, uh, you know, the, the whole essence of what you do is being around large groups of people. Right. And when you act or sing or orate in any way, the, the first of all, with just normal conversation, the six foot distance really is not enough. Right. You, 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 you spray a lot farther than that yeah. when you talk. And when you sing, you spray even farther. Right. So it's, 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 you're, you're literally caught up short. So essentially, most of my income literally disappeared overnight. And, 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 when, and even before pandemic, uh, the arts, as you know, is a feast or famine profession. You have really bad months. Yeah. And you have and you have, you know, fairly to very good months the rest of the year. That's that's where it comes into the thing. You've got to have something else to generate income like you're telling your daughter. Yes. So it was emotionally pretty devastating for a while. I mean, initially I was I, I felt like for almost a week I couldn't do anything. I felt like I'd been punched because so much disappeared yeah. so quickly. And uh, first, of all, oh God, how are we going to get these bills paid? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? Yeah. And and I and I guess in retrospect, it hung on for quite some time. Uh, and it I didn't I thought that it it it, it had ended, but it, it, what it did was it kind of hampered my thinking. I guess it was it may have been yeah. I don't know if I, I'm not qualified to classify it as such, but it may have been some kind of low grade depression yeah. that really that really hampered me from um, getting a lot of things done but as as i said uh time when thankfully there was um the uh they did change the thing about unemployment to include gig workers 
uh, because ind- independent contractors, which you tend to be yeah. uh, in the arts, I uh, had historically never been able to get unemployment. Yep. So that was a bit of a help. And um, and the, the initial stimulus, again, that was a, a bit of a help, but it was still very sketchy. We, we were coming from a, a pre-pandemic period of just getting by. Yeah. And then suddenly, boom, you know, like everything yeah. was brought to rock bottom. So what eventually... Uh, my my guitar and piano students, I started doing them via Skype or Zoom or yeah. FaceTime or whatever they were comfortable with. Yeah. And that took a little getting used to, but it, it, it worked out well. And in a sense, it opened up a few doors because I took on a couple of students that I would not have been able to access prior right. uh, who lived in different areas. I have right. I have a student uh, in Arizona that, that I that I teach on guitar. So there's the, that element uh, is, is sort of a, a door opening up. And then um, something happened that really it didn't turn things around, but it really put things into a whole new perspective. Um, as I said, I play in this local band called Wondrous Stories, and it's all top-notch players, really experienced people who have this as a sort of a, a busman's holiday. Our drummer, Ricky Martinez, plays uh, drums on Sesame Street and uh, is a session player in, in uh, Manhattan. We're all you know very versed you know, somewhat older guys. And uh, we we basically obsess about all this music uh, that we loved as children that not everybody else is into progressive stuff like Yes and Jethro Tull and things like that. But most bands don't play that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, one of our, it's a semi-revolving cast of people depending on who's available on any given week. So our, our first call sub on keyboards is a wonderful guy named Kenny Friedman. Yeah. And uh, prior to the pandemic, Kenny, uh, who also does a lot of uh, uh, club date and wedding work, as I did, um, uh, on his off nights, he would occasionally start doing a little Facebook thing from his living room just for friends and family, not uh, just to, to have like sort of give a little concert to anybody who wanted to listen. He just wanted to have an outlet for his uh, to, to play when, when he was restless. Yeah. <clears throat> and then once the pandemic came, <clears throat> he called me up and said, let's try doing a duo in my living room. I have it lit up and wired up as a studio now. Okay. Uh, I, I, he set it up to do Facebook Live. And let's try doing a couple of Facebook Live concerts for Venmo and PayPal donations okay. and see where it goes. So we tried it uh, on a Thursday night yep. and um, we did as much, you know, uh, blessed uh, publicity on Facebook as we could. No, uh, the donations aren't required, but appreciated, as most people say. We had a very notable success with it the first night. And so we, so we figured, okay, we'll keep doing this until it dies. And uh, we did it week after week. You know, it started out with a hand-lettered sign in front of us that was visible on camera, you know, with the name and with the Venmo uh, information and whatnot. And it gradually, week after week, you know, more lights came in, better sound, uh, kept adding different things. And then eventually using um, programs like OBS on the computer to, to, to structure your visuals and then tap that into Facebook. And um, we eventually started doing it instead of from Kenny's page, which we would share to my page, we started doing it. Uh, for, we started being hosted on Facebook by a group called Quarantine Keys, which which hosts concerts from mostly keyboard players, but some guitar players uh, from all over the country uh, at different 
weekly times. And Quarantine Keys got themselves registered as a 501c charity and uh, with the result that people's donations are tax deductible, which is a, which is a big draw for them. So as time went on, uh, the same people kept coming back week after week and the chat alongside the, uh, the Facebook concert window kept developing. People started talking to each other, started co- uh, contacting each other outside the show and this community of listeners and music lovers kept getting bigger and bigger and growing and cross-pollinating with each other. And we call them the jukesters. And um, all these previously non-existent uh, connections joined together. There's these firm friendships that have formed largely with people who have never met. Yeah. And some of whom have gotten together under hopefully distanced conditions. But it's literally been a family of sorts that's formed over this time. And people uh, have the have Zoom cocktail parties and coffee clutches yeah. with each other on times when there isn't a show. And uh, and, and that's that's really been a, a really inspiring sort of silver lining to the whole pandemic thing. But as I said, as the show developed and got more technically sophisticated, people would send in requests both beforehand and on the fly. And we just grab their requests and run with them. We each have several screens in front of us at this point. We have two pianos, two guitars, a lot of other ancillary instruments. Kenny has uh, electric drums. Sometimes I'll play piano or guitar and he'll play drums. And uh, he's really gotten the audio mix to a very sophisticated level. So it's, it's a different, it's different than just somebody strumming a guitar into their iPhone. Yeah. Uh, And, and they've, and, and people, calling these wacky requests, you know, that you would never expect uh, uh, just a, a duo. A friend of ours in Florida, drummer, has literally filmed himself playing the complete drum parts to a whole bunch of different songs and um, with headphones on. He's sent uh, the videos uh, online. To uh, He feeds them to Kenny and Kenny has them set up in a in a a frame in the OBS window that we have. So we and we play to him. We say we we beam Scotty in uh, uh, uh in, on the in the transporter, and we play as a trio virtually online. I mean, it can't be in real time. He he has to be pre-recorded because of the delay involved with being online. But uh, his pre-recorded thing that's done just for us, we play with that and, and have a three-piece band of sorts playing certain songs. And people put extra donations in to, to get those. We, we interpolate uh, music trivia games uh, into, the, into the, uh, the, the mix there. And we, all kinds of things. And people put in wacky requests, do a medley of, uh, on the spot of, uh, of uh, theme songs from 70s sitcoms. Huh. Uh, and and do a bunch of those things. Do do a do a set of stuff from Schoolhouse Rock from the seventies. All uh, then going to something by Rod Stewart. Then going to something by the Beatles. Then something by uh, um, uh, Fats Domino. Some something by Pink Floyd. There's all all and, all, and putting all kinds of visuals in. Uh, dan- dancing Pussycats behind us because we have a green screen in the room. It, one of the fun things about it, watching you guys do this, is number one. It feels like I'm in a club where where everybody knows each other, right? Yes. It totally feels like uh, watching the interaction in the comments. It, it feels like you know you're. It's just another Saturday night in some small venue on the island somewhere. It's the same folks that come out every week, and everybody's just hanging out with their friends, right? Oh yeah, and, and the nice thing about it is that these these are the same people who would be going out to a club to see live music. 
And while it can't be the same thing, really, it, it, it has, uh, it, it's people spend more or less the same amount of money with the donations that they would in a club. And uh, it still happens to benefit us. It helps us to buy Cheerios. But um, but also uh, they they really feel like a part of a part of the whole thing that that connection that closeness really fills a need that a lot of people have have had desperately since the pandemic started. Uh, a friend of ours uh, who's one of the jukesters uh, works in a big corporation uh, heard via the chat that one of the other jukesters because of the pandemic her job had just disappeared and just not you know not knowing her well but knowing something of her background uh literally you know pulled some strings and got her uh an interview an online interview for his company or a friend of his company and it resulted in that person getting a job and and that was that's just such a wonderful thing you know so that's the silver lining of something like this you get the opportunity to continue to entertain you get the opportunity to expand that audience into places that you wouldn't be able to if you were doing it purely locally and you're building a community at the same time that's that's really kind of cool Everything I do online, whether it's the Thursday night Jukesters show, uh, which we just did the forty-fourth uh, consecutive week of that show, or my my lessons or or solo shows online, uh, I'm going to. Uh, I always fold the Hooters thing into that. Uh, you know, clickable links. You know, this is the website. This is that. I rebuilt my own website, TommyWilliam.net. And it has links to all of these shows I do, the, the, the solo shows, the Thursday night shows, the Hooters website, the Wondrous Stories website, uh, another group that I play with called Live and Let Die, which is a Beatles slash Paul McCartney tribute show starring uh, my friend Tony Kishman, who is one of the original Pauls from Beatlemania. In the late 70s, we do a show with a five-piece band and a symphony orchestra and links to that as well and videos and and pictures and things like that. So, and again, I might not have, like the Hooters site, I might not have gotten off my butt and rebuilt the site and made it good had I not been forced into different thinking by the pandemic. Very cool. Take what the life gives you, lemons make lemonade. So you feeling positive about the next six months, do you think? Well, uh, positive, yes. I mean, there's always there's always worry. You can't get complacent about things. You have to you have to think it could all disappear tomorrow. Right. Uh, it, it, but but anybody who's ever been in the arts and had any measure of success of any kind, they all say the same thing. It could all go away tomorrow. You've got to do as much as you can with it in the moment. And, and make it as productive as you can and as long-lasting as you can and make sure it sends out as many ripples in as many directions as you can yeah. and branch out in a lot of areas that may not have been reachable logistically in the old days. Yeah. Uh, but again, something like this can be really debilitating to you uh, on an emotional level yeah. because, it, because it sometimes feels like the world is crashing down on you. Yeah. Um, but you really have to... Uh, try very, very hard to try to keep your focus and your perspective yep. and, and not to get bogged down in, in the, um, the, those bad feelings. I mean, acknowledge them and, and, you know, recognize them and understand why they're there, yeah. but don't let them take you over if you possibly can. Yeah, no, uh, you got to stay strong. You got to stay positive and, uh, and keep pushing forward because this will pass, you know? Yes. And I keep saying that to myself every day and it's, and it's, and I'm very, I'm 
feeling very, very optimistic in the last couple of days just because I've heard things. I mean, obviously, you know, you, there's no promises. You, you, I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. But I understand that there's going to be a very, very large push to uh, ramp up the distribution of vaccine yeah. and uh, and to and to have the more of a stimulus. Uh, thing to help people advance themselves and get back on track. And um, I just keep my fingers crossed, uh, except when I'm playing the guitar. And um, we have to uh, uh, hang on to each other and hang on to ourselves. Awesome. That is the absolute perfect place to, uh, to end it. I think Tommy, great. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I mean, I know that everybody has a certain small percentage of people that they knew when they were very young, that they go they go back farther with than almost anybody outside of your own family, obviously. Yeah. And it's surprising sometimes how very few they there are that you still stay in touch with, even if you only talk to them once or twice a year. Yeah. It's um, it's the people that you go back with that far every year. That's becoming more and more precious emotionally. Uh, one of those connections is mine with you. And again, we went for, you know, de- a couple of decades without seeing each other of, you know, when you go back that far with someone, just something that gets a little bit more uh, powerful about that, the more years that pass by, because it, it's a sense of uh, if grounding is the right word, but it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a shot in the arm, which everybody needs. And the pandemic, I think, has maybe made that a little more precious. Yes, no, I agree. Um that summer at Ustam was one of the probably the single best summer of my life, to be honest. Um, yeah. Made really fantastic friendships that have lasted for a very long time. So, um, yes, and I'm I'm really glad that you and I stayed connected. And I am looking forward to when all the craziness is over. The next time you come out, we'll get to see each other again in real uh, in real life. And in, yeah, in the meantime, I'm going to keep spending my uh, my Thursday afternoons at five o'clock uh, Pacific, watching um, watching Quarantine Keys. Oh yeah, five o'clock Pacific. Yes, <clears throat> uh, the 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 regular Thursday night show. It's on it, it's on uh, uh, at eight p.m. Eastern time, uh, as you said, five o'clock Pacific, and uh, it's uh, it's hosted on Facebook by Quarantine Keys K E Y S. Um, but it's also shared to our pages. One of them is Kenny Friedman's music page and my page, Tommy Williams. There's a, there's a million Tommy Williams's on Facebook, but you can't miss my page because there's a, uh, the, the profile picture is a, a guy playing guitar with it, with a very intense red backlit, uh, background there. And, uh, and those are, and those are shareable, but quarantine keys, you can always find it. They host concerts. Uh, all week long at all hours from uh, from many different amazing performers all broadcasting from home or whatever and uh, we go on 8 p.m uh eastern time uh going on to at least midnight if not 1 a.m eastern time and uh we take uh requests on the fly from from uh, all different kinds of people for all different kinds of music and our standard policy is um, if we get enough requests to take us to midnight, 
we do our Midnight Madness segment, which is a mini set of stuff from uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So uh, I definitely say to everybody who hears this, you should definitely check it out because if you're in your living room with your pajamas on and mix a couple of drinks, put it on the big screen if you can with your you know Apple TV or Chromecast or whatever, and um, enjoy yourself because you really will. It's a really wonderful communal uh, experience, especially if you participate in the chat as the show goes on. Yep. Thanks for coming on. It was great talking. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. And, uh, and I'm uh, really looking forward to seeing you again soon.